0: The most super, bloodiest, wolfiest podcast of them all. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, Samuel Lesk, Emma Alexander, Laura Dreesen, Fiona Porter and George Bendo. The JODcast, February 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to The JODcast. I'm Emma and joining me in the studio are Laura and Fiona. Hey! Hey. Hello! How, How are you both doing today?
1: I'm very cold, (laughs) (laughs) as the only Southern Hemisphere citizen in the room right now, snow is very pretty when you're inside looking at it, but when I go out in it, it's cold and slippery and wet.
0: We've had a a blast of snow here in Manchester, Uh, which is, yeah, it's pretty to look at, but it's less fun to be in.
1: Yeah, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners in other parts of the world where it's snowing like a lot... Not just, I think it was maybe two centimetres if we're lucky. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think they'd be like, come on, guys. Here. Yeah, the, the whole
0: country <laughs> just falls apart.
1: when <laughs> You know, so, doesn't mm-hmm. it? We just don't know how to cope. We yeah. somehow all made it to the office, though, so that was... Exactly,
2: cool. yeah.
0: We should we should congratulate ourselves for making it here, getting to the studio.
1: Yeah, I didn't fall on my butt. I don't know about you guys. I managed to get to work. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> Pretty much, on yeah. yeah, some of the people around me did fall over, so... <laughs> In the show this time, Emma Alexander interviews Katie Mack about her cosmology work and her work in science communication. And Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the February night sky. But first, before we get to all of that, here's George Bendo with this month's news.
3: In the news this month, the United States government shutdown and wide field camera three on the Hubble Space Telescope. First The United States government shutdown, which ran from the 22nd of December to the 25th of January, had an adverse effect on astronomy and space science, as well as other activities related to space. Like employees at many other government agencies, 95% of NASA employees were furloughed or put on leave without being paid when the government shut down in December. Some other research organizations, like the National Optical Astronomy Observatory and the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, were able to continue operating on their financial reserves... But other government organizations with some relation to space science or space exploration, like the Federal Aviation Administration and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also furloughed many of their employees. Not all NASA employees were furloughed. Employees responsible for tracking or operating spacecraft, including the International Space Station and New Horizons, were exempt from the furlough. But this meant that those employees needed to work without pay instead. Additionally, Jet Propulsion Laboratory was able to continue operating during the shutdown because of how it receives funding from the United States government. Nonetheless, some NASA activities were adversely affected by the shutdown. Many NASA scientists could not attend meetings like the American Astronomical Society meeting at the beginning of January, and the shutdown forced the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA, an infrared telescope that operates from a specially designed Boeing 747, to stop flying. The government shutdown also had a notable effect on private companies. Axos Aerospace needed to delay launch of a rocket because they could not access weather data from the NOAA and other aerospace companies have encountered delays because they could not get appropriate approval from government agencies. Moreover, the shutdown had a major disruptive effect on people's individual lives as well, as NASA employees, like many other government employees, struggled financially without their monthly paychecks. At this point in time, the United States government is funded until the 15th of February, although many American politicians from both the Republican and Democratic parties are working to keep the government open past this date and to avoid government shutdowns in the future. Nonetheless, it is not clear whether NASA and other space and astronomy organizations should prepare for additional disruptions in the future. Also in the news, Wide Field Camera 3 on the Hubble Space Telescope, temporarily ceased operations as a safety precaution on the 8th of January because of a technical fault. Wide Field Camera 3 is one of four active instruments on the telescope, and the instrument has been operational since 2009, when it was installed during one of the final servicing missions to the Hubble Space Telescope. The timing of the fault was particularly bad, as it occurred during the United States government shutdown, and as many employees at the Goddard Space Flight Center, which normally operates the telescope, were furloughed. Fortunately, it was determined that the problem was with some of the circuits, and that this problem could be fixed by resetting the circuits. The instrument was operational again on the 15th of January and has been able to perform science observations since the 17th of January.
2: Thanks for that, George. Now, Emma Alexander interviews Katie Mack about cosmology and science communication.
0: I am very excited to have with me, uh, joining me via a scout, uh, Dr. Catherine Mack, also known as Astro Katie. So, Katie is an assistant professor at the Department of Physics at North Carolina State University and works on um, all manner of things, judging by uh, her bio online. So, Katie, on your website, you describe the work that you've covered, uh, things such as dark matter, black holes, galaxy formation, cosmic strings, and uh, the ultimate fate of the universe. So, it's yes. oh, small questions, <laughs> really. And so, is, is is there anything else that you'd like to introduce yourself with and uh, and the work that you do?
4: Um, I mean, I, I think that's, that's I, I do a lot of different things related to theoretical cosmology and like early universe physics. And I tend to bounce around between topics, um, going for things that sound really fun and interesting and usually have some kind of particle physics uh, angle to them. So I, I work on how to better understand the fundamental nature of the universe through astrophysics and cosmology, basically.
0: Okie dokie, and so you mentioned um, that you focus on on the particle um, aspects of that. Um, How how do you, what are the links between particle physics and astrophysics? How do they all link in together and how do you use that in your work?
4: Well, uh, in the sort of more extreme areas of cosmology, so the the Big Bang, you know, the the early universe, and certain kind of extreme systems, the particle physics becomes really important. So in, in the early universe, it's really important because everything is super dense, and the particle interactions take on a different kind of nature than they do in ordinary situations. And so you have to really understand the underlying particle physics and uh, kind of the fundamental structure of the universe to know what's going on there. And then you have sort of similarly complicated things happening when you deal with stuff like black holes, especially primordial black holes, which is something I've worked on in the past. And then stuff like cosmic strings, where you have this other kind of extreme system, uh, where the sort of formation of these hypothetical objects has to do with processes that are usually thought about in terms of the early universe and and kind of this particle physics process. So those kinds of questions are really interesting to me because you can unite these two different ways of thinking about the universe and two different ways of approaching what, you know, fundamental reality is really all about. And you can look at it from the the huge side, you know, the the cosmology side and also the the tiny side and, and get insights into, you know, reality from both directions, and, and these days, a lot of what happens in both particle physics and cosmology have to kind of, they kind of have to link to each other, because we are learning a lot about fundamental physics from studying cosmology, and we're learning things about the universe from studying uh, particle interactions in colliders and things, and so there's there are a lot of really interesting links. And especially in dark matter, which is one of the uh, main things I think about, those both of those kind of realms are very, very important.
0: And uh, so whereabouts is the, the research currently at? Do, do we know what dark matter is yet? It's uh, There's quite a few theories going about, isn't there?
4: Yeah, we, we really don't know what it is yet. We are learning a lot about what it isn't. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where the investments are being made at the moment, is ruling things out. But uh, but it's getting really interesting because some of the most favored models of the last couple of decades are becoming more and more constrained by the fact that we have not seen evidence of those things yet. So for example, supersymmetry was supposed to be this really great theory that kind of extends the standard model of particle physics and tells us where to go next in that kind of area of thinking about how particle physics works. And supersymmetry produces a very nice dark matter particle, um, the neutralino, and you can have it appear at a particular mass and cross-section, and it all works out beautifully on paper. And so a bunch of dark matter experiments were set up that that could potentially find that, that neutralino, that supersymmetric particle. And at the same time, the Large Hadron Collider was all set up, and it was going to find supersymmetry, and everything was going to be great. And those things have not happened. So we have not found the neutrino. We have not found evidence for supersymmetry. The Large Hadron Collider has been fantastically successful in that it found the Higgs boson, but it has not found anything else that really tells us where where we should be going with our models of particle physics. So it's a really interesting time with dark matter because a lot of people who thought, like, oh, okay, we know exactly what we're looking for, are having to think about what else we might be able to look for and which other directions we should take.
0: And uh, so are you one of those people that is uh, trying to think up of uh, alternative theories about dark matter?
4: Well, I'm I'm interested in alternative theories about dark matter. I've worked on a couple of different things. Uh, so I've worked on axions as dark matter, and that's, that's a, something that's gotten a bit of a resurgence lately. I've worked on the possibility of primordial black holes of dark matter, another thing that people have talked about a lot lately. But the the kind of work I'm doing at the moment is a little bit agnostic as to what the dark matter particle is as long as it has some kind of particle interactions that could affect the stuff around it. And so I'm I'm thinking about what impact that could have in the early universe. Specifically, one of the things I'm thinking about is if you have a kind of dark matter particle that can have annihilation, so the, the particles, if they interact with each other, they can annihilate and create particles that we can see. If that happens in the early universe, then it could change how stars and galaxies form in the early universe. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about a lot lately. But I try not to have like a favorite dark matter model where I'm like, oh, I definitely think that's it partially just to prevent my own disappointment, (laughs) um, and partially to to try to be as, you know, impartial as I can.
0: What kind of stuff do you have to be looking out for observationally uh, to to be able to distinguish between different theories?
4: Well, so in general with dark matter, there are kind of three ways to try and figure out what dark matter is. There's there's looking at collider experiments where you try and sort of produce the dark matter particle. um, That hasn't shown us what the dark matter particle is yet, but that's something that people are still pursuing. There's the direct detection angle, where you build a, a detector that could detect these sort of minuscule interactions between dark matter particles and regular matter particles inside the detector. Again, that's there have been a lot of interesting little anomalies in, in direct detection experiments, but so far we haven't said, okay, we've got it. And then there's indirect detection, where you look for where where dark matter in space might be doing some kind of annihilation or or decay or something like that where you look for heavy concentrations of dark matter like really dense regions where there's a lot of dark matter and you see if there's some kind of weird radiation or particle signal coming out of that and the stuff that I work on is kind of most related to the that last um that last scenario the indirect detection where what we're really looking for is any sign that dark matter could have been dumping a bunch of energy into the gas where the first stars and galaxies were formed. So a couple of the kinds of, uh, the kinds of signatures you'd look for would be maybe you would have fewer of the sort of the really tiniest galaxies because those galaxies would be more affected by dark matter annihilation or you might look for things like weird radiation backgrounds in the early universe where something like uh, radio astronomy would be really helpful to look for that because these days we're getting to the point where we can we can see the radio signals from neutral hydrogen around the time the first and galaxy were forming and so if we can see a signature in that then that tells us something about dark matter potentially so those are the kinds of signatures I'm i'm looking for in, in terms of not not looking for with my own uh, observations, but the kinds of things where I'm saying like this this might be a good place to look.
0: And is that something that um, could be uh, those observations could be improved, for example, with the Square Kilometre Array?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The SKA is the thing that I keep in mind as as the best way to test some of the things that I'm doing modeling for.
0: What aspect of the uh, of the SKA is that going to be the the low frequency aspect
4: yes. of it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so the low frequency radio astronomy. The idea is that you can get to higher and higher redshift, which is earlier and earlier times, and then you might be able to see something about. What's going on with the the very first stars and galaxies and and of course there there are a couple of other instruments that that could do interesting things i mean the the edges experiment that recently had a very interesting result having to do with the first stars and galaxies that that might tell us something interesting uh although the 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 result that that came out is kind of hard to fit into any model of dark matter, and that's been a really interesting thing to think about as well and it's not clear exactly where that's going.
0: How was it that it didn't quite fit into the kind of existing ideas about dark matter?
4: Well, so what what Edges saw was so they were looking at the absorption of the cosmic microwave background light by the gas in the time of the first galaxies, basically, which would be complicated to go into all the details about that. But what they saw was that it looked like the gas at that time was colder than it should be with the kind of standard models of how the first stars and galaxies should have acted. And one of the possible explanations for the gas being really cold would, would be that the dark matter was really cold and there was some kind of interaction between the gas and the dark matter that cooled down the gas to a lower temperature. Now that's, that's really hard to fit into any kind of model where the dark matter is producing radiation because that would heat up the gas. And it's also hard to fit into any model that we have for, you know, any kind of dark matter that could interact with, with the gas. I mean, there are a couple of models that have been suggested and they sort of marginally fit with the data, but it's kind of unclear. So these would be models where, for example, maybe the dark matter has a little bit of electric charge and that um, allows an interaction with the gas that can can cool down the gas. But it's sort of unclear. And these are models that haven't been studied all that well before, because they um, they were sort of constrained by some other things, and we didn't think that we needed them. <laughs> and so now a lot of people are kind of trying to put together new possibilities for that. And then there are other things where you could have, for example, maybe instead of making the gas really cold, you could just make the background radiation a lot stronger. And that's a little bit hard to do without heating the gas, but there are certain models of dark matter or other sort of weird exotic physics that have been suggested that could boost up the radiation, and then you could still have more normal sorts of dark matter in there. But So it's, it's, it's a complicated question, but it's been one of those things that dark matter physicists have had some fun playing around with what the possibilities are.
0: Yeah, because there's so many different things that y- you could change, and I mean, so I suppose there are some things that might be dependent on other things as well. How how yes. would you even get get started? I mean, I suppose it's yes. years worth of previous research to to build on.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's all you know, it's all in this in this sort of area of phenomenology, which is kind of where I work. Which is you sort of just think about if if you have this particular theory, this kind of model, what are all of the consequences that it would have on the physics of the stuff around it or the physics of, you know, what's actually happening. And in this case you start with okay, we have this observation. What can we do with the theories that can create something that'll do that? And there are a lot of theories to play with that are already existing and then if you're a model builder, um you're somebody who creates a new theory that will have a certain interaction that'll allow that to happen. I'm not a model builder. I'm I'm more of a phenomenologist, so I look at sort of what's been what's been proposed before and whether or not these various things would, would fit together in, in an interesting way.
0: Mm, okay, so basically you get to decide if the universe works or not.
4: <laughs> uh, sometimes. I mean, the the stuff that I do, I, I like to tell people, you know, it's fun because it can be really creative. So I get to to sit sort of right between the theorists who are creating the new models and the observers who are actually taking data. And I get to be kind of in the middle and I talk to the theorists and I find out, okay, what are the interesting theoretical models people are putting together? Like what are the actual equations and what does this look like on paper? And then I talk to the observers and I say, okay, what can this new telescope do? What does the data look like? What are we constraining currently? and then i try and find new connections between those things so i try and find new ways to constrain or or rule out or confirm things about the the theory with the kinds of data that that we have now or will have in the future and so there's a lot of like kind of thinking outside the box like you know oh you know if i have this model what does that look like with radio telescopes you know that that kind of thing and and it's it can be a lot of fun
0: so there is a stereotype, I guess, that that scientists are kind of very, very logical. Very, uh, well, I don't know, like not not it's, it's not the creative thing, but you're you're, yeah. you're describing a very creative process there. It seems.
4: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really creative, and it and it is really fun. And there's a lot of you know just kind of. Trying to make connections that other people haven't made before. I mean, that's kind of the holy grail is to find some, some connection between two concepts that hasn't been written down and then you can do some calculation and you have, you have this, this cool new idea. I have to try to kind of keep up with what's going on in a whole lot of different fields. (laughs) So I have to, I have to, I have to understand what all the early universe theorists are doing, what the particle phenomenology people are doing, you know, all the particle theory, all the cosmology theory, and then I have to also know what 's going on with all the observations and have a good understanding of a, a real broad range of astrophysics and cosmology because that 's what 's going to allow me to to try and make some of those connections because you can, you know you can 't just come out of nowhere you have to be really fully embedded in these things in order to know like what 's the interesting question, what are the things we know now and what don 't we know, and what can we find out and so I spend a lot of time going to conferences and talking to people and you know, uh, scouring the literature and trying to get a really, really broad understanding of what's out there, and then that's that's what I use to try to make those new connections.
0: Well, I was about to ask you, uh, besides what you directly work on, is there anything else that has captured your interest in kind of the world of astronomy recently? But it sounds like you 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 are you know bringing in so many different areas of astronomy. It'd be f- hard to find one that you're not involved with in some way.
4: Well, I mean, there's there's always way more out there that I can possibly work on, so. One of the things that I'm really excited about is gravitational waves and I haven't I haven't yet found a way to um to use those in my own research but I I hope I will soon. I mean there there are a couple of things that you can do with gravitational waves that can tell you about dark matter and and I have a few ideas about it but it's nothing sort of solid yet. But gravitational waves are an astonishing new window into the universe and I'm really really excited about what we're going to learn about black holes about galaxies about sort of space-time itself uh, by watching these events of black hole collisions neutron star collisions I mean we've already learned so much and as LIGO and Virgo and and eventually Lisa keep going we're going to see more and more of these these collisions and we're going to learn more and more about the universe in a totally new way. And then of course, pulsar timing is another possibility that will hopefully tell us a lot about different kinds of, of black hole collisions and then we'll learn more about how galaxies come together and that that'll be really interesting too. So there's there's so much out there that we're learning by being able to, you know, really like feel the vibration of space time, which I just, I think is such an amazing thing.
0: So would you say that we're in uh, almost like a golden age of astronomy? There's so much going on at the moment.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, I I feel like every time you open a new window on the universe, you have a kind of possibility for a new golden age, you know. So we've we've just opened this window. You know, we've just started to be able to see gravitational waves. And, you know, we don't know where that's going to go yet. And that's, that's always a really fun place to be a, where you don't know what you're going to get out of it.
0: Well, I guess we can all just wait with our fingers crossed and maybe get involved if we can and, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, see where it goes.
4: Yeah, definitely.
0: And uh, you you mentioned before that you you go to all sorts of different conferences to uh, keep up with all these areas of uh, astronomy, and uh, you often use the hashtag academic nomad to uh, describe your travel. So I guess moving on to a a little bit of a a different topic now away from the science is uh, Mm -hmm. all all of the travelling that you do. I mean, it seems like it's... um, a common feature of an academic career is is to be going yeah. around the world. I mean, just looking at your career history, you've gone from your PhD at Princeton, a, a fellowship at Cambridge here in the UK, uh, over to Melbourne in Australia. You, you've worked all around the globe. How yeah, how, yeah. how how have you find that, and and how how do you still continue to find that? I
4: mean, uh, it's been a, it's been a great privilege to be able to see so much of the world and to be able to work in a lot of different places. Um, it's also you know it's hard as an academic to pick up and move every few years, you know, and that's, um, a lot of people, a lot of people in academia experience that to varying degrees where they have to sort of pick up their whole life and move to a new institution, sometimes within the same country and sometimes not. And in my case, I've been crossing oceans and that's, that can be really hard because you, you leave your friends and family and you, uh, have to learn a whole new system and being in a place where you're not a citizen has its own kind of challenges. And so, you know, that that can be really hard But I I, I tell people I, I like the travel, I don't so much like the moving You know, so But the fact that I've been able To go all over The world to conferences And collaboration visits and workshops And all sorts of things like that that's That's been Just a fantastic opportunity And that's not something I would have been able to do If I had not been in academia You know, um, I didn't grow up With a whole lot of money and I wasn't likely to become somebody who would be sort of, you know, jet-setting around the world. But in in academia, especially in a field like cosmology that's so international and and where these kinds of, you know, uh, exchange of ideas is so important, I've been everywhere for conferences to just meet up with people and talk about ideas and try and connect with, with people and collaborate on stuff. And that's been an amazing opportunity. And I'm I'm so grateful that I've been able to see so much of the world uh, by by doing this, and and you know sometimes it's it's too much, <laughs> sometimes I just want to I just want to hide and stay home and not do anything, but um but it is it is really nice uh, to have to have the the option and and have the opportunity to to get around so much.
0: I mean that's I think that's one thing. So this is something that we've. Um, I guess' a little bit of feedback on the on the podcast recently and when we 've ta- talked about the human aspect of science and the fact that science is done by humans and humans are you know wonderful creatures on the whole, but you know we do we do get tired and yeah. you know, well so there's, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about for example like sexual harassment in astronomy you know, there's mm-hmm. racial biases and um that that 's a discussion that you know I think everyone needs to be having at the moment, and um you, you can 't well i I personally don't think you can separate it from the the pure no. science i so i was I was wondering you know, what what's you been your experience of that you know throughout your career have the conversations changed um based on you know career level or where you've been in the globe
4: um um the conversations around just like being a human in science you mean or or specific questions
0: uh, just in just in general yeah so being yeah uh, you know, the, the human aspect of science and uh,
3: yeah.
0: i guess any positives or negatives that that come from that
4: well I, so it's it's kind of hard to say i think in the last um several years the the conversation about you know the impact of the the culture of academia on individual people i think that that has gained a lot more prominence but with a lot of these kinds of conversations you always you have to ask yourself if the conversation's been going on and you just hasn't haven't been aware of it or if it's it's something that that has been louder recently you know and i think for me it's both i've become more aware of the kinds of problems people have and the kinds of challenges that that academics face and the kinds of injustices that happen in academia i, I do think also that that it's been sort of more uh in the public conversation at least so you know things like um dealing with uh harassers in academia um that's been getting a lot of press lately and and so there there've been a few situations where people have actually faced some consequences for uh harassment in academia and not enough <laughs> obviously there's still a lot going on that that's not uh dealt with but there's starting to be a little bit more pressure on institutions to really make some changes and do something about that, which is which is good. And there's been a lot of discussion around things like the kinds of discrimination and injustice that uh, people of color face in academia. And so that's a, a good conversation to, to have more prominence. But again, you know, it's one of these things where you always have to wonder, like, what did I just not hear about or what was I not listening to? And, and you have to really... Make an effort to to listen and to uh be aware of the the privilege that you might have had to not be aware of those conversations in the past, and so that's another thing that i I try and always you know keep in mind but yeah i mean i I do think that that more and more people are thinking about this stuff and talking about this stuff and and I hope that that's leading to some change for the better
0: yeah that's, that's yeah i I would agree with that that's um yeah it's, and I think it's definitely important to have these conversations as well. And uh, I guess that that leads on to uh, another question of mine in that so you you do a, a lot of science communication so you know yes. from articles in in magazines such as sky guy telescope to yeah, having a, a a very respectable twitter following. <laughs> um so I was just wondering yeah, how how you find that and uh, you know being I guess a little bit more in the, the public eye when it comes to it. Yeah.
4: Blog. It's it's interesting it's it's a real mixed uh, bag sometimes because like i mean the, so there there are downsides to having a public profile um uh one of them obviously is that sometimes people yell at you and that can that can be unpleasant and and there can it can be more serious than that i don't want to make light of it i've i've had to talk to the police about a couple of things in the past but i mean you know i'm, I'm fine but just you know just to say that that it's not just people yelling sometimes things can get bad if you if, if you ever a prominent person online anybody has has that issue and and if you're sort of more marginalized you have more of that issue that's kind of how it goes um but uh and then then the other downside is that you know it can be distracting it can take a lot of time um when you know as an academic there are certain things that that you really have to spend a lot of your focus on but uh the the positives have been have been really great you know i've i've through having a public profile on Twitter and through a lot of writing and things like that, um, I've been able to connect with some really amazing, interesting people, and I've been able to talk about astronomy to people who wouldn't otherwise maybe have that much connection to it. And I think it's important for scientists to be in the public eye, sometimes just as regular people, you know, um, so that people who are not, connected to academia or science can see that, you know, we're not sort of these, uh, ancient, um, you know, silent people in tops of towers, uh, just putting out pronouncements, you know? <laughs> like, I think it's, it's important for there to be a dialogue and for there to be interaction and to just have the possibility of, of presenting ourselves as, as regular people, not, not just to like, you know, so people think Nice, uh, think better things about scientists, but but also so that more people can see themselves uh, as having access to science, having the ability to get involved in science, and so those are some of the things that I, I really try to do with my my public outreach and my writing and and all of the social media stuff. But yeah, I mean I, I mean fundamentally, I just really like to talk about uh, about astronomy and physics and. Uh, to share that kind of wonder that I have about the universe and so that's, that's been something that I've, I've had a lot of opportunities to do lately and I'm, I'm really enjoying being able to, being able to do that. And right now I'm, I'm writing a book which is another really fun thing and kind of a new experience. <laughs> Okay, how's it going? Tell us all about it. Um, It's a so it's a popular level book. It's going to be published by uh, Scribner in 2020, and the the topic is the end of the universe. So like the ultimate fate of the cosmos. And it's going to be a book that goes through several possibilities for what might happen at the end of the universe, what it would look like and and how we're trying to figure that out, like what what the science really is, and what the process of trying to answer this question looks like so I'm talking a lot about you know the kinds of observations we can do, what we're learning from particle physics, what we're learning from cosmology. What new telescopes are going to show us, and you know how we can narrow down these possibilities for what's going to happen in you know billions and billions of years um and and what what can tell us the difference between different kinds of of models but it's uh it's it's a lot of fun <laughs> to to write about ultimate destruction, and probably more fun than it should be, but um i'm I'm really enjoying it. Oh, brilliant! Well, I'll look forward to to that when when that
0: comes out. I I don't know if it's uh, the the same over in America at the moment, but uh, one of the things uh, that I think some science communicators have encountered recently over here in the UK is it's lack of trust in experts. I think it's it's been put across, in like, oh well, how 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 can I believe these scientists that global warming is, is real or, or anything yeah. like that? So, so do, you, do you encounter anything? Along that? I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose astronomy is a little bit more of a neutral topic uh, that maybe people don't get as upset about. Um, but yeah. you know, do, do, you, do you encounter many people um, with you know these kind of uh, notions?
4: Yeah, I mean, well, I certainly encounter more of that when I talk about climate change because um, that, that's a thing that, that some, some people have very strong Opinions about some people are very distrustful of of experts in any field, and you know a lot of times there's this idea that there's this split between the regular people and the elites you know and and one of the things that really feeds into that um, notion is is when scientists are viewed as these you know distant condescending people who are not connecting with the public and are not regular people themselves so when those things do come up I, I think that it's it's so important for scientists to be visible and to be approachable and to be in dialogue with people there's an anti-intellectual kind of anti-elitism thing that that happens and that can be really harmful especially when it comes to stuff like when people stop vaccinating their children because they don't trust doctors or you know stuff like that that can be really bad and really harmful but i also think it's it's important to Keep in mind that for a lot of, for a lot of people, the idea that scientists don't have regular, regular humanity's best interests in mind is, is not a totally unfounded notion, you know, and, and there have been in history a lot of situations where, where the scientific establishment has done really awful things and where people have been lied to or harmed by, uh, by people who have power over them, and sometimes those are scientists or other intellectuals. And so, I think it's important to to be aware of that and to to recognize and acknowledge that when we whenever we have conversations about you know uh, sort of anti elitism, anti intellectualism, stuff like that, because there there are real harms that have been that have occurred, and in some cases are still occurring, and we need to deal with that and be more responsive to and more understanding of the concerns that that people really have so so i don 't think it 's just a matter of like you know we need to show these ignorant people um, you know what the problem is i think there's there there really does need to be a dialogue between people who are professional scientists and researchers and people who are not, but whose lives are affected by what scientists do and that's i mean that 's kind of everybody right so it's a it 's a matter of of being out there, being in conversation, really having that connection with people, and so I do think that that's one of the ways that stuff like social media can be very useful um, but I think there are, there are a lot of different things that can be useful in That you know things like citizen science um is really great for getting people more involved and more connected to the scientific community, and a lot of different kinds of outreach where you know uh, scientists go out and have more connection with with people around them. You know, there's there's a lot of different things you can do that will sort of bridge that gap um, between what we might call the general public, just everybody who's not a scientist and, and people who are in this field.
0: And I guess kind of following on from that, um, do you get any kind of strange conspiracy theory type questions <laughs> from people? Um, you know, going completely, yeah. completely off the end there. And, and if so, yeah. how do you deal with them? Do you have any particular favorites that have uh, come
4: into you before? <laughs> Um, I mean, I get I get a lot of uh messages from people who have their own theories about the universe, you know. So I have I have a special folder in my email for for those kinds of emails. Um, and and on Twitter and stuff, people are constantly saying like, "Oh, I have an idea about you know dark energy or whatever," and um, and those are not necessarily conspiracy theories. Sometimes there's just Somebody has has an idea and they want to run it by someone and sometimes sometimes there are conspiracy theories where you know people will write to me and say that you know um, the speed of light is is totally different and you know here's here's what it should be and everybody's been lying all this time you know so I, I get those kinds of messages and occasionally I get messages from people who think that the scientific establishment is against them and is conspiring to silence them and you know if if only we would listen you know we would we would have the answers to everything and and some of those uh can be very very aggressive there are a couple of people who just spam the entire physics community uh to say that they should have won the Nobel prize for example um so uh so this this kind of thing uh can happen a lot and then of course there's the sort of, the sort of flat earth thing and I don't even engage with that at all. Like, I mean, I don't answer any of these emails. But, but with the flat Earth thing, I just like I block them on Twitter immediately because like there's that's just so far out there. There's no there's no reason to to even even engage with that. So yeah, I mean, it happens. I think that people who work in things like um, medical science or climate science get it a lot worse because there are way more theories, conspiracy theories around those kinds of things apparently if you believe one conspiracy theory you're likely to believe others and so whenever you have a kind of group of experts or some kind of established science there are going to be people who think that it's all lies and everybody else is in on it and you know that's just a, a, a thing that that can happen I think.
0: Well hopefully by uh doing the science communication like, you work, know, that, that you do and I was putting out the podcast as well hopefully we can mm-hmm. uh yes help help with that a little bit I guess.
4: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think I think just generally um, having having science uh, and and professional scientists kind of pervading more of culture uh, can be can be really useful.
0: And uh, you, you mentioned um, that you're you're writing a book at the moment in terms of your uh, science communication uh, work. Uh, what what else is coming up in in your in your world of, uh, of science? What's uh, what you're hoping
4: to work on next? Oh gosh, uh, there's so, I'm doing so many things. (laughs) Um, well, so the, the big thing is the book, um, you know, that, that'll be out in a year and a half or so, probably. But I still write, I write for Cosmos Magazine, which is a, an Australia-based science magazine, and every quarter I have a column in that. I appear on podcasts once in a while, uh, so, but kind of at random, so I don't have my own podcast or anything i there i do a lot of different presentations like in real life there's some interesting things uh there, but you know uh, nothing where i where I would wanna sort of promote it at, at the moment because uh, things there's a lot of stuff that's not quite yet public i guess but yeah, in terms of research well so i'm I'm still working on a whole bunch of stuff related to dark matter. I have a paper that hopefully will be coming out soon that that is um really wild stuff so <laughs> I don't want to say too much about it before it's out, but it's a kind of a side project that has to do with some um, some very kind of exotic physics, and and relates a bit to the end of the universe. So keep an eye out for that, I guess. And one of the things about writing a book about the end of the universe is that you think a lot about the end of the universe. <laughs> and so I've been able to to incorporate some of the thinking into some of my research, which is a lot of fun. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just uh, I'm just kind of always. Always doing little things here and there, uh, rather than I don't have like a a really big project other than the book and and my general uh, research direction, which is which is mostly in dark matter, but then a whole bunch of other things.
0: Well, I was going to say, it sounds like you're doing so many things. It's uh <laughs>
4: yeah.
0: <laughs> I wonder that um, you've got the time to do any of them.
4: Uh, I I mean, I don't. <laughs> you know, I'm just I have my my day job, which is everything to do with with my job at the university and then I have my nights and weekends job which is all of the uh science communication and I'm trying to compress more of that into sort of business hours but it's it's there's a lot there's always so much to do and and I enjoy it you know but it it can be all encompassing sometimes so it's I'm I'm still working on trying to find ways to to better balance uh you know taking breaks and <laughs> just chilling out but that's that's a work in progress
0: I was going to say, if you find anything based on that, can you let me know as well? Because, uh, yeah, tired,
4: yeah. but I think, I think, uh, I think a lot of people.
0: Well, well, this if, is if the
4: problem. Yeah. well, this is the problem with academia though, is that, like, in academia, there's, there's never a time when it's, when you're just done, you know? <laughs> like, there's always, there's always stuff you could be working on that would be, you know, somehow better for your career to be working on that. And trying to find, like, trying to find balance and trying to find a, a level of Overwork or, or you know, working just the right amount that works for you is is a, a real challenge, and I think everybody in academia faces that challenge of finding a way to compartmentalize the the work that they do and and to find a good balance between things that that let you relax and take a break from work and and the actual work itself. And I think that's super important. I think everybody should be focusing a lot on that kind of work-life balance because otherwise you can really do harm to yourself but but I don't think there's any like one sort of formula for it everybody kind of has to figure that out for themselves.
0: Yeah so what what kind of things do you to on the subject of work-life balance what kind yeah. of things do, do you do you like to do outside of you know your research and outside yeah. of science communication?
4: So when I when I travel for work I try and always take a little bit of time to just wander around and and, and see the city or whatever and, and that's something that I really enjoy is, is I like travel in general and so I taking some time to do a little bit of tourism when I'm when I'm travelling for work is, is one of the things that I that I do to kind of to chill out, I guess. But I also uh I also try and exercise as much as I can. I know that's really important to do, so I go out running and I sometimes play sports and you know, whatever I have an opportunity to do. Um, I try and do that as much as I can. And other than that, I don't know, I read books about science fiction. I <laughs> um, I uh, uh I just, I try and make sure that, you know, that I'm not spending the whole weekend working because I think that that can be really bad. And, and some weekends I don't work at all. And, and sometimes that's bad for my progress. But I think it's it's important to have boundaries and so I, I, for example, I try not to answer work, working emails on the weekend. Um, and if I do have to work on the weekend, I try and do it in like a nice coffee shop downtown or something like that, you know. So, so there's kind of, you kind of have to set your own boundaries and find the kinds of balance that work for you. Um, yeah. like that goes back to the, the scientists are people too. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I try and, I try and go outside. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of trivial, but. When you work at a desk all the time, you know, you can forget to do that. But like, so last weekend I went out into the forest a little bit and that was really good. So those kinds of things can be important.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on uh, on this shortcast adventure. Um, it sounds like you're an incredibly busy person. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to speak to me today.
4: Oh, thanks for having me. It was really fun
0: no it's it's I'm just conscious that we've been speaking for a very long time, and uh <laughs> you should you should go and enjoy the rest of your Sunday, <laughs>
4: okay, I'll do that Thanks then, Emma.
0: Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So first of all, we have Laura's odds and ends, and you want to talk to us about FRBs. No no surprises (laughs) there. No
1: offence, Laura, but definitely not surprises. You love your (laughs) FRBs. Yes, yes. I think I've talked about FRBs as my odds and ends pretty much every not every time, but pretty much every time. I can't help it. It's exciting. Um, (laughs) So this time we have a brand new telescope. And some brand new FRB properties. So let's do a little brief reminder about FRBs. So FRBs are fast radio bursts, and these are really bright, really short flashes of radio light. So uh, FRBs last usually less less than a second, about a couple of milliseconds to tens of milliseconds, where a millisecond is a thousandth of a second. What we do know about them is that they come from outside of our galaxy. So because of some of the properties of the light itself, we can tell about how far away it came from. So we know that they come from outside of our galaxy, and they're really bright, and almost all of them are one-off events. So until this brand-new telescope called CHIME, which is the Canadian H1 mapping experiment, I think, which is a really interesting telescope, and we might put a picture up on Facebook of it because it looks like a few half-pipes of mesh next to each other. Um, so radio telescopes tend not to look like what we expect telescopes to look like. And this one in particular is a little bit weird, extra weird looking. Uh, the nice thing about Chime is its frequency bandwidth. So that means the frequencies that it looks at are in a bit of a different sort of range to what we normally look at. So most FRBs have been detected at 1.4 gigahertz, which is what we call L band. And it's sort of the standard radio frequency where we're looking at pulsars and things like that. So it's not really surprising that we find most of them there. But one of the big questions was, how low do they go? So how far down can we see FRBs in frequency? Telescopes like LOFAR, which are really low frequency, about 200 megahertz, haven't seen any, um, and we don't know why that is. So Chime sort of bridges that gap. It goes down to about 400 megahertz. So it's about 400 to 800 megahertz. So it's sort of that in-between range where we still expect to see them at the top at about 800. And we're not sure, until now, how far down into the band they go. So Chime found 13 new fast radio best. How how many are we on now? You've got a little flow so, chart in your office, yes. haven't you? Secrets. secret. Oh, sorry. Um, no, so, <laughs> so it's about 60. So the first one was discovered, it was discovered in data from the early 2000s, but it was discovered in 2007 looking sort of back at old data. But recently, since we've got ASCAP now online and, Ooh. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. ASCAP. I like it. Um, it's not mine, but <laughs> I use it. So with ASCAP on and CHIME on, we should be getting heaps. So CHIME looks at pretty much the entire sky every day. And so every part of the sky gets at least 10 minutes with CHIME. So that's really, really important when you're looking for something where it could come from anywhere. The ones that they've reported in this paper are 13 new FRBs, and some of them are seen right down to 400 megahertz. So that's really cool for FRB science and really interesting as well because it gives us a bit of a hint about what it could be. So where we see something in frequency can tell us or at least adds another piece to the puzzle of what the heck they are because we still have mm. no idea.
0: So with, with these low frequency detections, is it that uh, an FRB will go off across a wide range of radio frequencies and we've just not spotted
1: the lower end of it for now or do they go off at different frequencies? So at this point it's not really clear yet. Because the thing about time is when they detected these 13 FRBs, it was actually before they were fully up and running. They were still in testing phase. So imagine how many they're getting now that they're actually kind of nearly, completely fully up and running. They must be getting heaps. So we don't actually know. So some of them in this data look like they're only in the lower part, but that isn't necessarily true because it might have just been that that top part wasn't exactly working hundred percent during that part of the observation so right now not a hundred percent clear so some of them we have seen at L band that they look like they're quite um, narrow well reasonably narrow in frequency and you can't sort of see that it goes to either end of the band some of them go across the whole thing some of them are a bit blobby they're a bit all over the place to be honest um, but this does add extra information and as well as finding 13 new ones they also found a second repeater so until Right now, there was only one repeating fast radio burst. Every other one went bang and then gone, which makes it hard to study them because you can't look back and find out more information because it's just, that's it. That's all you got. What you've got is what you got. But we now have a second repeater, and that's extra important because before it was sort of like, is this one the only one? But in science, there's very rarely only one, especially in space because space is big and there's lots of stuff. So we have finally found that second repeater, and Chime should find more because, as I said, it looks at all the sky all the time. So that means it's looking back at the same spot. So that's really, time is really exciting and interesting for what we're going to find out. And this second repeater, is just a little bit of extra info. It does look quite similar. It has very similar properties to the first repeater. So that's another interesting point because maybe this is still a question because two is not really enough to, to nail anything down, but it still has indications that maybe there's two populations. One's that go bang and they're gone and one's that repeat. So this adds extra information, and I guess, though, for, for most of us scientists, it's very, very cool as it is, but it also is sort of a prediction for how much information we're going to get out of this amazing new instrument in Canada. So it's just really exciting to find out, get a bit of a taste of what we're going to be finding out using time.
0: It must be really exciting to be, this This is developing, mm-hmm. as oh, you said, the... It was, what, 2007, did you say, yeah. that we discovered the first one? Yep. Yeah. And so this is something that's just over a decade in the making. If you think yeah. about the long history of astronomy, that's just like a blink of an eye.
1: Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things that excites me the most about astronomy is that we can see something, and we, we see the light, but we have absolutely no idea what, what it's coming from, and I think that's so cool. We have evidence of this thing, and a lot of time you look up and you're like, oh, it's a star, and that's stars are cool, I should point out stars are cool, but sometimes we do see stuff and we see it and we just go, yeah, that's a thing, but no idea what it is, and I just think that's so exciting and it's really nice to see it happening in real time, all these new little bits of information, and eventually one day we'll get that bit of information and go, that's it, we know what it is now. Um, I still think there's a little bit away because we need to really pinpoint the locations of these things, and Chime cannot do that by itself. At this point, because it's got a very large field of view, but that means really bad localisation. It can't pinpoint on the sky where stuff is.
0: Does that mean that it's not going to be able to find the repeater then? Or is it, do we have a rough idea of where it might be and be able to
1: point at the telescopes after? Yeah, so we get a rough, so from time we definitely get a rough idea, but we do need to get a little bit more information before we can start pointing telescopes other telescopes at it because as I said Chime's got a big field of view. So that means if something goes off in one of the beams it's a little bit too big a space for most other telescopes to sort of point and get a localization but it's being worked on that because as I said it keeps it's going to keep looking at this repeater so every time it sees it it gets a little bit more information and we can then once it basically builds up enough info we can start looking with other telescopes. They've got a decent idea and I shouldn't say that it's Bad, because it isn't bad. It's not like gravitational wave localization, which at the moment is, yes, yeah, like half the sky. It's nothing like that, but it's still quite, it's quite a large area, and most telescopes don't have the, the beam to cover that area. We will be able, to, we'll definitely be able to find out where exactly where it is, but not quite yet. Unless somebody has pinpointed it and they just haven't told us yet.
2: So this repeater, um, how often is it that it actually repeats? Are we talking a matter
1: of days? Well, that's a really good question because um, this, both repeaters, as far as we can tell, there's no underlying periodicity. There's no pattern to the bursts. I think the one thing that they can say is that once you, if you see one, you're likely to see more. But once you haven't seen one for a while, you're unlikely to see one for a while. But there's no, not like a pulsar where we know exactly when it's going to happen. There's no periodicity. So um, I think they saw six bursts in approximately 23 hours of observing. So those 23 hours are sort of spread out here and there and around, but I think it was about six bursts in 23 hours. So that gives you, you know, a little bit of an idea of of how often we see them. But to be honest, this is another of those mysteries.
2: Well, that's the problem with such a small sample size, I suppose. You can't really draw anything from a sample size of one or two. You can't tell if it's just that normally, for example, they're somewhat periodic, but this one's weird or if it's...
1: Normal to have no real periodicity. Yeah, exactly. So that's why it's exciting that we've seen the second one, because that means that there are more really excited about this instrument and what it's going to tell us. And when Meerkat comes online for fast radio burst and pulsar detections, it's going to be a whole other level. So all the instruments that we have now that are starting to look for FRBs, it's actually really cool because everyone is looking in a slightly different, what we call a parameter space. They're all looking at different depths on the sky, so there's different sensitivities, different areas on the sky, whether they can localize or not, and different time domains and things like that. So the the whole world's power, I guess, behind the FRB mystery is, is really nicely covering a whole range of interesting bits of information. So we should I'm not going to say soon because I don't really know when, nobody knows, mm-hmm. but one day we'll know what they are.
0: <laughs> but in summary for the moment, just what are SRBs? We just don't know. Anyway, moving on from one set of transient things to another brings me on to my odd and end. Um, so did either of you see the recent lunar eclipse that we had? Unfortunately the
2: weather got in the
0: way (laughs) Silly question, we're all in Manchester It was horribly cloudy
1: (laughs) Yes, I thought about setting my alarm But I was like, hang on, I'm in Manchester Probably not
0: I I was one of those people, I set an alarm I set an alarm every 30 minutes or so during the eclipse Mm -hmm. It was, alarm goes off, look out the window Still cloudy, go back to bed for a bit Alarm Uh goes off still cloudy. Yeah. It was it was so tantalizingly <laughs> clear a few hours before the eclipse. Like before I went to bed that evening. I even took a few photos, but it, it was just no no. It's like the new. the clouds always know yes, when there's do. something big happening. I <laughs> think
1: they do. Luckily though Twitter and Facebook had loads of pictures. Yes. Yeah. Some of those were really spectacular.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah. In fact, I what I'm really interested in is if any listeners managed to catch the eclipse either just with your eyes, with a telescope, binoculars, or if you were f- taking videos or photographs of it. Because if you were, you may have caught sight of a meteoroid impact on the lunar surface. So a short, bright flash of light on the lower left side of the moon. It happened at about 4.41 Universal Time. That is what UT stands for, isn't it? Yes,
1: but it also GMT.
0: GMT, yeah. Yeah, it's the same um, thing. UT, GMT. 20 to 5 in the morning, UK time. But this was just a couple of minutes before totality started. And as far as I'm aware, this flash was first recorded on Reddit from someone who had seen it with their own eyes. And then they'd gone back and checked a couple of live streams from observatories. And, and they spotted it there as well in those videos. And it, it's since been confirmed by numerous other observations. But if you were taking any photos or videos of the lunar eclipse, it's definitely worth looking back at any of your own stuff to see if, if they contain it. So it's, as I said, was the lower left side of the moon, obviously the orientation... Uh, It changes a bit depending on where you are. But it's near to the, oh, I've written the name of this crater down. Uh, Burgius, I I should have looked up how to pronounce this. B-Y-R-G-I-U-S. Flash impacts on the
1: moon. Uh, So does it have to be a big thing or could it even be just a couple of centimetres? Like a tiny rock could make a little puff of dust? Because it is quite dusty and there's not much to hold the dust down. Mm. So if you do kind of poke the surface of the moon, then... (sighs) thing of dust comes up, so do they have to be a big rock, a small rock?
0: Yes, this is something that has been studied a little bit, um, especially when the, the moon is, is partially illuminated is, is usually when people are looking out for these and the, the flashes, you look for them in, in the shaded part of the moon. And apparently you can expect to see one about every two hours. Huh, um, yeah. they're, they're, that, they're actually that common. Obviously with the lunar eclipse, it was so many people were watching the moon at once that that was one of the factors in managing to catch this one. And um, yeah, because there's no atmosphere on the moon. There's, there's nothing to burn them up as we get you know, meteors in our own atmosphere. Um, so apparently they, they can strike the moon at over 45,000 miles per hour. And that flash is just from the sheer amount of heat that comes off them. Mm. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure how big they are. There's there's probably calculations you can do to how big it must have been mm. for the the energy that's come off and the the, the brightness of the flash. Um, but yeah, apparently this is the first time that one has been spotted during a lunar eclipse. Like so I said, they've been spotted before, but this is the first time during an eclipse. Sort of lucky coincidence. Yeah, yeah, and in fact, this one hasn't been confirmed but the Royal Observatory in Greenwich did report a second flash happening Mm -hmm. only a couple of minutes later so this would be the second impact that we may have seen on the moon except it wasn't picked up in any other live streams it was only this one from the Royal Observatory and I've watched the video it looks fairly convincing it looks very similar to the other one it's on on the opposite side of the moon and they reckon that because they, they their video wasn't as exposed as some of the other streams, that may be why they caught it, because mm-hmm. it wasn't drowned out by the light of the moon. Mm. Um, but again, if you were taking videos, photos, whatever, of the moon, so two minutes later, 4.43 GMT, maybe you might spot a flash on the moon again. But that one, as far as I can see, hasn't been confirmed yet. So it would be really exciting if a Jodcast listener had managed to capture that one. For sure. Actually, are these
1: things that would have been like a, a shooting star if they... Across Earth's atmosphere instead of whacking into the moon.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just little little bits of space dust, rocks, junk, whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it.
2: Nice. And Very cool. On the Earth, even if the atmosphere doesn't get things, I mean, I think the rule of thumb is if you expect a crater about ten times the diameter of the meteorite oh, okay. in kind of question, okay. it's sort of something approximately like that. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same for the moon, but you're going to see it a lot more clearly on the moon because I imagine there's a Quite an impressive number of small meteoroids which just go straight into the ocean or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess you can catch them a lot more easily on the way up.
0: Well a lot of the time you can find them, say in like Antarctica for example. So you get people going down there to, to find meteor there's meteor, meteorites and meteoroids, isn't it? Meteoroid before it hits the atmosphere. Then it's a meteor, and then when it hits it's the Earth, around, it's a yeah.
1: meteorite. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but you can look for them in, in Antarctica, because uh, apparently they really stand out against the, the white of the, the mm. ice and
1: the snow. That would make sense. In Australia, I know that they have a... At least they did have, um, like, a little network of cameras that picked up when these things hit in certain places in the desert, because desert is a good place to find these things, but also difficult to find them, mm-hmm. because it's the desert. But if if you can sort of detect when they they come down then it's unlikely that someone else has just sort of picked it up or that it's it's been damaged or whatever so they they have a little network of cameras and to detect specifically so they could collect them.
2: So going from flashes on the moon to plants on the moon back in the December episode Hong Ming was talking about the Chang'e 4 which has landed on the moon with uh, a number of plant seeds and the aim was to try and see if they would germinate, see if we could get them to grow, even while on the lunar environment. And I believe it was set up to be sort of atmospherically controlled, so naturally they'd get um, all of the all the gases they'd need, their carbon dioxide and so on, because, as you mentioned, no atmosphere on the moon. And we did actually see some plants germinate. I believe there were cotton seeds which got going, but unfortunately they are no more. Oh, what happened to them? As far as we can tell, what happened was... They hit the lunar night side. The little launcher's controls were solar-powered, Well, the moon rotated, and the launcher is now on the dark side. So the solar power it was relying on is no longer available, and the module that these seeds were in hit some very cold temperatures very quickly. I believe it was around minus 50 Fahrenheit, uh, but I'm,
1: I'm not completely sure what that is in Celsius. So we should, we should say the, the face of the moon is always pointing towards us. It's always the same size of the side of the moon pointing towards the Earth. But the other side, is, calling it the dark side, is a little bit dodgy because, of course, that side of the moon does face the sun. While we never see it on the Earth, it faces the sun. So they, they knew that this would happen. So I guess I'm curious whether they sort of just went, oh well, or did they not build in a battery, or was that too
2: heavy, uh, sort of, I guess, it guess was, what
1: happened? It was too
2: heavy, they didn't okay. include the battery, just due to weight concerns. What must have been the case is that they'd hoped that, that the plants would hit a sort of hibernation state, or they'd hoped that maybe some of them would have germinated early, and those might die, but later ones might survive, so they'd have a mm-hmm. sort of staggering going on. In the end, uh, the plants only survived, I believe it was about 200 hours so something in the vicinity of a week. Mm-hmm. We hardly knew you, moon plants, But that's still cool that they got them to grow at all.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's one step onto human space exploration as well, right? Mm-hmm. If, we, if we are going to go out into the stars long term. We, We're going to need to grow plants. Well, We're going to need to grow vegetables.
2: I can actually talk a little bit more about this, because there are some more experiments underway.
0: Oh, OK. So
2: the ISS currently does grow some of its own plants. Partially but they grow them. Sort of Sometimes, yes. Uh, There have been a variety of things grown in space. Uh, Lettuce is a very popular one because it's relatively quick to grow, although as far as nutrition goes it's not ideal. But there have been others. There have been a couple of varieties of spinach, potatoes. There's been a variety of things attempted.
0: Actually, I remember one one of the things when when Tim Peaks was up on the ISS, the British astronaut, one of the projects they did with schools, I think, was they sent a ton of rocket seeds up there, I think, and then they brought them back down and they got school kids to, to grow the rocket seeds. And, um, yeah, see if there was any difference between the ones that had been up in space and the ones that had stayed on Earth, I don't actually know what the results of that were. But, well, uh,
1: if anybody's seen the movie Silent Runnings, which is, that movie was long, was long. But anyway, they grew times in space, so maybe that's something like Silent Runnings is in our future. They had big pods with glass roofs floating around in space with plants Mm. in it. So it's a step towards that.
2: The floating is actually apparently a pretty big problem because, you know, when you're on Earth, you plant a seed. It knows which way is down. Mm -hmm. You know, the gravity comes into effect. When you get in space, the plant, unless it's in a centrifuge, does not know which way is down. You have to plant them orientated a certain way to make sure that the roots end up going where the roots are meant to go. Okay. So that's, that's actually a problem which there's a Horizon 2020 project working on right now. Again, they're working with lettuce nice and easy to work with, nice quick grower and it's not like anyone needs to worry about nutrition on earth. And So I believe they're planning on looking into things like beans in the future for something which is a bit more nutritionally valuable. So they've been working on a variety of little little tests to see what they can do to make plants grow better, what conditions they can tolerate. The plan is actually for the ISS to grow some plants in a centrifuge, so they don't need to worry so much about uh, the gravitational effects. Uh, the microgravity will still be a problem. And it will also be a problem for long-term space travel. If you're looking to travel to Mars and have fresh veg, you do want to make sure that its roots don't end up
1: trying to grow up. We should also say that Horizon 2020 is a European Research Council funding programme.
2: Yes. Water is actually another problem. Uh, Because if you're if you're using regular soil to grow these plants in, which you'd assume would be the logical thing to do, water in space is not going to soak into the soil. It's going to just sort of slide around and on top.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, it's
2: it is yet another issue. So what they're looking at for this project is into hydroponics. As an alternative, I believe they use a sort of nutrient gel which contains the things the plants need to to keep on going, mm-hmm. and they don 't need to worry about the issue of water just sort of bubbling all over the surface but there are some there are some further issues to work with, like how long this this nutrient gel can keep on giving them what they need, making sure the plants get enough oxygen, things like that so there are a number of different things which need to be looked into to make long-term growing of plants in space for food viable. Because, you know, while you can get some lovely flowers on the ISS, I don't think anyone on a Mars mission is going to be tempted to eat them unless things have gotten really bad.
0: And eating plants sounds much better than eating nutrient gel that these plants might be grown in. So I'm thinking there must be like a sustainability thing there, like where does the nutrient gel come from?
1: Mm-hmm. If anybody out there plays sport. You get those little sugar gel pack things, and they're gross. (laughs) Nobody wants to survive off that sort of thing.
2: I'm not sure they would be particularly useful to humans, because it's it's the nutrients the plants need. True. So it's, uh, I believe, one of the major things they were investigating was how different concentrations of uh, nitrogen in this would affect plant growth and how low you can realistically go while not adversely affecting their growth rate. Well, we've unfortunately missed the lunar eclipse by now, but... For an update of what's going on in the night sky at the moment, here's Ian Morrison with this month's night sky.
5: The night sky for February 2019. Well, towards the southwest we have a lovely skyscape with a constellation of Orion holding court. The three stars of its belt lead down to the lower left to the star Sirius, the brightest star in the sky the brightest star, in Canis Major. Following the three stars up to the right, we come into the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with the open clusters the Hyades and beyond the Pleiades. The bright star Aldebaran is not part of the Hyades cluster, lies about halfway between it and us. Up to the left of Orion lie the heavenly twins, Castor and Pollux. And over to the left is the single bright star in Calis Minor, Procyon. As the evening moves on, Leo the lion will be rising in the southeast. And between Gemini and Leo, a very faint constellation with only one bright star, which is Cancer. But just above that brightest star is a very nice open cluster called the Beehive Cluster, or Praesepe. Again, going higher up above Orion, you'll see a bright yellow star, which is Capella, the brightest star in the constellation Auriga. Now the Milky Way runs basically along the base of the twins in Germany and up through Auriga, and there's some very nice open clusters that can be seen in a small telescope. So let's have a look at the planets. We'll start with Jupiter. It starts the month rising at about 3.30am and brightens from magnitude minus 1.9 to minus 2 as the month progresses, whilst its angular size increases slightly from 33.6 to 36.1 arc seconds. By month's end, it rises by about 2am, so it will be higher in the sky before dawn. Sadly, it is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic, and currently lies in the southern part of Ophiuchus, just above Scorpius. Now Saturn. Saturn, shining with a magnitude of about plus 0.6, rises one and a half hours before the Sun at the start of the month, some 85 minutes, in fact, after Venus. Its disk is 16 arcseconds across, and its rings, which are still 24 degrees to the line of sight, spanning 35 arc seconds across. Now Mercury. Mercury passed through superior conjunction, that means it went behind the sun, at the end of January, and will not become visible in the evening twilight until around the 12th of the month, having a magnitude of minus 1.2. During February's second half, it dims to magnitude minus 0.2, but by its end, sets some on one and a half hours after the sun. With an angular size of seven arc seconds, It reaches its greatest elongation east on the 26th of the month, then 18 degrees away from the sun, and with an elevation of about 9 degrees, some 45 minutes after the sun has set. Now, to observe it, binoculars could well be needed, and that reduces the background glare from the sun. But please, do not use them until after the sun has set. Mars Though fading from plus 0.9 to plus 1.2 manishes during the month, remains prominent in the southwestern sky after sunset, at an elevation of 38 degrees, as it moves northeastwards from the constellation of Pisces into Aries on the 12th of the month. If only it could have been at this elevation when it closest to us last year. Its angular size falls from 6 arc seconds to less than 5.5 arc seconds during the month. So we'll not be able to spot any details on its salmon pink surface. Finally, Venus. It begins February with a magnitude of minus 4.3. Its angular size reduces from 19 to 16 arc seconds during the month as it moves away from the Earth. But at the same time, the percentage illuminated disk, and that's called its phase, increases from 62 to 72%, which is why the brightness only reduces slightly from minus 4.3 to minus 4.1 magnitudes. So what about the highlights of the month? Well, there's nothing spectacular, but there are some nice little skyscapes with the planets and the Moon. On February 9th, before dawn, one can see Jupiter, Venus and Saturn. If it's clear, you'll easily spot Jupiter lying up to the right of Venus and, just above the horizon, Saturn. And to see Saturn, you'll need a low horizon in the direction south-southeast. On probably the 10th, in the evening, you can see Mars above a waxing moon. So looking southwest if the evening is clear, Mars will be seen lying above a waxing crescent moon. And that night, Uranus lies... Up to the upper left of Mars. Now, on the following three nights, the 11th to 13th of February, Mars skirts past Uranus. So, looking southwest, if these evenings are clear, Mars with magnitude one will be seen passing close by Uranus, giving us an easy way of finding the magnitude six planet. And I've given you the star chart on the Night Sky page. Just search Night Sky Jodrell, and you'll find it to show you where it will be relative to Uranus. On the 16th of February, just before dawn, Venus and Saturn will be seen close by. You'll need a low horizon towards the southeast, but you should then be able to see Venus lying just up to the right of Saturn. In fact, Jupiter is shining up to their upper right. On February the 22nd, just after sunset, You may have a chance to spot Mercury above the western horizon. You'll need a good low horizon and you may well need binoculars to cut through the sun's glare. Again, please do not use them until after the sun has set. The nicest skyscape of all, I think, in February is on the morning of the 28th. There'll be three planets and a waning crescent moon. So hopefully if it's clear before dawn and given a low horizon, towards the south-southeast. You should be able to observe Venus, Saturn, a waning crescent moon, and Jupiter, forming a line above the horizon. And finally, something to see on the moon, called the Alpine Valley, and the February the 13th and the 25th, when it lies close to the Terminator, a good night to observe what is an interesting feature on the moon's surface, and that's if you've got a small telescope. Close to the limb, you should see the Apennine mountain chain that marks the edge of Mare Imbrium. Towards the upper end, with a small telescope of course, you should see a cleft across it, which is called the Alpine Valley. It's about 7 miles wide and 79 miles long. As shown in the image, again on the night sky page, there is a thin rill that runs along its length, which is a real challenge to observe. I've never managed to see it, although I have photographed it. The dark crater Plato will also be visible nearby and you might also see the shadow cast by the mountain Mont piton lying not far away in Mare Imrium. That is a very interesting region of the moon. So I do hope you get some clear skies during the month to observe our lovely heavens.
0: Thanks for that Ian, and for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogosanu and Samuel Lesk with The Night Sky Where You Are.
6: Kara from New Zealand. Hi everyone. We're here at Space Place at Cat Observatory holding galactic conversation from the heart of Wellington in the Southern Hemisphere, my favourite place to be, with the music of the amazing Rian Sheehan, our Wellingtonian star composer. I'm Haritina Mogosanu.
7: And I'm Samuel Lesk.
6: At this time of the year, we are looking towards the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way. And Orion is just like last month, the main feature out there in the sky, apart from the South Celestial Object. Everybody talks about the evening night sky, but I'd love to also mention the wonderful early riser.
7: What's an early riser?
6: I think it's someone who wakes up around 4 a.m. and then commutes to work, or they're just a morning person. At that time of the morning about 4 a.m. the galactic center rises as well, not just the people getting up early. And as they rise, Jupiter is out there in Ophiuchus about 30 degrees above the horizon and above it is the red giant Antares. As each day goes past, Venus will seem to lower towards the eastern horizon towards Saturn which will also be visible in the early morning around the 19th of February when it will have a spectacular conjunction with Venus.
7: So a most interesting morning sky in February. And let's just add that the Southern Cross will be high up in the sky at that early hour, crossing the meridian and pointing straight south. So at least south is easy to find at 4am in the morning when you've misplaced your car keys or your train pass.
6: In the evening, Mars is still the only planet in the sky that is visible with the naked eye and the Sun sets around 8.30 and is in the constellation of Capricornus going into Aquarius from the 16th of February. The brightest, second brightest and third brightest stars are visible in one shot in the evening sky. Sirius, Canopus and Alpha Centauri.
7: Last month we talked about Orion and some of the objects from the northern hemisphere that sit below Orion in the southern sky, such as the fabulous Rosette Nebula and the elusive M74 and the Magellanic Clouds. We also talked gastronomy about the pot and the frying pan. This month, in February, we will continue that conversation as we do some more star hopping.
6: Star hopping is an ancient stargazing technique that involves hopping from one star to the next and making patterns and parts on the way. Let's get hoping.
7: I say we start at sunset, and here in Wellington, Mars is very low in the sky on the western horizon. All the other planets are in the morning sky, as we mentioned. So if you're a morning person, you're in for a treat.
6: Two ancient royal stars are flanking Mars. To the left of Mars is Formalhaut, bright star, 19 brightest and a magnitude of 1.16. To the right of Mars, almost at the same altitude, maybe just a bit higher and roughly at the same distance as Formalhaut, is the star cluster, the Hyades, and the bright star, Aldebaran. This is another one of the four royal stars, which also include Regulus and Antares, visible in the morning sky. In between Aldebaran and Mars, at the same height as Mars, is the Pleiades. For Maori, they are now called Petaphysi, the Shining Ones. They are in the constellation Taurus, which is just bordering the Milky Way. On the other side of the barely visible Milky Way, remember we are looking towards the edge of our galaxy, the celestial twins Castor and Pollux are just grazing the horizon. Straight up from Pollux, which is the highest in the sky here, is Procyon, The mini-dog star, or hot dog as we call it here at Space Place, as the asterism is made of two stars. So that's what we came up with. I know this one from Frank Andrews, the father of good planetarium
7: presentations here in Wellington. So, in the spirit of gastronomy, this one is from Frank as well. We will now point out the pop. Higher up in the sky from Procyon is Orion, upside down here to what is known in the Northern Hemisphere. So the red giant Betelgeuse is lower and then comes Orion's belt, the sword and then Rigel. The blue giant is up on the top. Now when you look towards Orion, you're looking towards the pot. Its handle is made up of Orion's sword and the bottom is Orion's belt. Holding the shape of the pot is Heto Orionis, a variable blue white main sequence double star in Orion with its magnitude between 3.4 and 4.9.
6: We are very practical people here in New Zealand, and it is summertime, and when you think of all that seafood that we will point out later in the sky, it is very nice to be here. There's just a little issue that the nights are too short at this time of the year.
7: Are you serious?
6: Yes, very much so. Serious is to the right of Orion and in a straight line from Procyon,
7: if you look northeast.
6: And if you draw a line from Procyon to Sirius, around 9pm in the middle of the month, it will point to zenith, the point straight overhead. To the right of the zenith, and almost as high, is my favorite cat star, Canopus. Also, I've heard of this one from Frank. He explained to me one day that any serious astronomer in New Zealand has a ginger cat called Canopus. This is a tradition about the Cat Star, Canopus is part of Carina, a spectacular zone
7: in the sky. We cover more of that in detail in that part of the sky between Sirius and Canopus and our How to Find Sirius navigating the night sky on Milky Way Kiwi Part 3.
6: Also in Carina is Eta Carinae, the famous fabulous hypergiant and another variable double star. Eta Carinae was the competition for Canopus because, due to a great outburst in the 1840s, it became the second brightest star in the sky. Eta Carinae is one telescope field to the left of the Southern Pleiades cluster, which is at the bottom of the Diamond Cross, and almost halfway in between the Southern Cross and the False Cross. Again, we cover a lot of detail in our Navigating the Night Sky part 4, where we have precise instructions for Southern Pleiades, Eta Carina Nebula, Pearl Cluster, NGC 3532, and the Jewel Box Cluster. And you will only need binoculars
7: for these ones. So all we had to do was follow the Milky Way to South. Well, for those of us who cannot see the Milky Way all the time due to light pollution, we have followed the brightest stars and objects in the sky, hopping from Mars to the Pleiades, to the Hyades, Procyon, Orion, Sirius, Canopus, And now we arrive at the South Celestial Circle of Stars. If you do see the Milky Way, lucky you, then as it lowers towards the southern horizon, you can see the False Cross. Then lower down, the Diamond Cross, and then the famous Southern Cross. Both the Southern Cross and the two pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, are in the Milky Way, roughly in the direction of South. All of these crosses are made up of circumpolar stars and turn around what we call the South Celestial Circle. So you will find them at different hours, being at different heights
6: in the sky. The stars from Centaurus, Alpha and Beta Centauri, or Hadar, together with Birtun, Mulefine and Delta Centauri make the South Celestial Frying Pan. This is a season-based asterism visible probably best in January and February. Southern Cross and the Cossack are respectively the fish and the flounder, the latter is the Maori name for the Cossack, in the frying
7: pan. You imagine that the Southern Cross is a big arrowhead. On the other side of the 60 degrees declination south circle is Akana, the end of the river of Eridanus.
6: So these are the most prominent stars of the early evening sky, if we can call that evening, as we can only start seeing them after 8.30, when the sun sets here this month. And it's really awesome to see as the sun goes down, Formalhaut is the bright star right above it. I used to watch that one from the Northern Hemisphere, dreaming of the southern sky, and one of the first things I've learned about the sky in the Northern Hemisphere is that Fomalhauts shows the secret passageway to south, to the initiate. I kept wondering why that is until I came here to Wellington, and you can see further to the left of Formalhaut, maybe just slightly higher in the sky, is Alpha Centauri at this time of the year. Triple star system, our closest neighbor, the third brightest star in the sky.
7: If you can find Alpha Centauri, one of the pointer stars, then you can find South. Also near to the left of Formalhaut is the asterism of Grus, with its line of double stars. Grus is such a delicate and beautiful lineup of stars, with all these double stars that you can see with the naked eye. Grus looks like a big cross, or arrowhead, that points at Achenar, the end of the river of Eridanus, about 50 degrees high in the sky.
4: So the
6: story goes, if you put one hand on the southern cross, and one hand on Achenar and clap, that's very near the south celestial pole, the extension of the south pole in the sky, and then drop down to the horizon
7: and you found south. It's an amazing sky this month, even though we don't see much of the Milky Way, we have brilliant stars in the sky. Sirius is the brightest star in the night sky, Canopus is the second brightest and Alpha Centauri is the third brightest star at about four and a quarter light years away. Sirius a double star is also very close to us at about 8.6 light years whereas Canopus also known as Alpha Carinae, is about 309 light years away and perhaps not too many people know but Canopus is also a double star.
6: I really love this star, my favorite thing about it is that it's used by interplanetary spacecraft as a reference point, since it lies away from the plane of our solar system where the bright planets are found. And also, in my favorite book, Dune, the planet Arrakis is the third planet orbiting Canopus. We don't know if there is any spice orbiting around Canopus, but we can tell it's a great star anyway. Even though it appears half the brightness of Sirius, Canopus is a rare F-Zero class supergiant star. These stars are rare and poorly understood. They can be either evolving to or from a red giant. And that made it difficult to understand the absolute brightness of Canopus, which helps us get some idea of the distance to
7: it. Only with the launch of the Hipparchus satellite, will we be able to tell it's about 310 light years from Earth. His estimates before that gave anything between 96 to 1,200 light-years. So at 310 light-years away, Canopus is about 15,000 times brighter than our Sun. It's so big that compared to our Sun, it stretches about three-quarters of the way across Mercury's orbit. Canopus is post-main sequence as it has ceased fusing hydrogen in its core.
6: If Canopus is a supergiant, which we all thought that was awesome, well, Eta Carina is a hypergiant. Eta Carinae has the highest confirmed mass and luminosity of any star that has been studied in detail and is a candidate to become a supernova or even a hypernova, so it will be seen by our neighbors in other galaxies when it goes off. Eta Carinae is 7500 light years away. We will end here, next to the biggest star known, Eta Karine, pondering about how big is big. In the meantime, we look forward to seeing you at Space Place. Space Place is one of the historical icons of New Zealand in terms of astronomy, located at the heart of our capital city. We have amazing historical telescopes, a 23 centimeter cook built in 1867 that we use for public viewing and we also have a retro bowler and juvenile 16 inch. I notice that's the word we use now when people talk about stuff made in the 60s.
7: The cook has quite a story behind it and how it got to New Zealand and eventually how it ended up in Wellington. It has been a very important telescope for research including being used to photograph Halley's Comet in 1910. And it was used for over 120 years for research, mainly with double stars.
6: Also on display is the James Short Telescope. We only look at this one and not through. It's locked inside the displays. It's a very important telescope. We believe it came here with Captain Cook and it was donated by Adam Reed. He's the son of Peter Reid, who was the creator and presenter of the New Zealand's night sky TV show in the 1960s. We also have a beautiful planetarium where I spend a lot of my time.
7: If you ever wish to find us, Space Place is at the top of the botanic gardens looking out to the harbour and surrounded by flowers and New Zealand birds that are amazing and especially now in the summertime, it is a poetry for the senses.
6: I am Harizina Mogoshanu.
7: And I'm Sam Lesky.
6: And we are Milky Way Kiwi at Space Place at Carter Observatory in New Zealand. Southern Hemisphere, with the February podcast, the Southern Hemisphere section for the Jodcast.
7: Thank you, and clear skies from Wellington.
1: Thanks for updating us on sort of my neck of the woods, Haratina and Sam. And now on to the feedback.
0: We were all very excited in the Jodcast studio this morning because we, we had a present.
1: (laughs) it's <laughs> a the parcel <laughs> so there was definitely a little bit of like jumping up and down it yeah
0: it was absolutely. <laughs> and, and it was a very well packaged parcel as well um, those and are so the was most so, exciting yeah way. so many layers to take off it's like you're doing like a pass the parcel but the, the prize inside is really cool <laughs> it
2: was really very cool <laughs> and uh, to the person who sent it whose name will be revealed shortly uh, you'll be happy to hear that it got here safe and
0: sound So, thank you, Philip. We've had a little card and a a present from from you. To all at the Jodcast, I have enjoyed being informed and entertained by the Jodcast for many years, so I'm sending you something fun in return and a small token of appreciation and thanks. I hope you like it, Philip. Thank you so much, Philip. It's amazing. We should Um, say it's Philip
1: from Brixton. Philip
0: from Brixton, yes.
1: So a specific, Philip. (laughs) <laughs> Philip has topped himself, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, and, and this probably doesn't translate well over the medium of podcast, uh, but it really is cool. It's get it here for us all to look at, not that you can see what we're looking at. Uh, we'll, we'll post
2: something, don't worry. Yeah, so you can all enjoy what this is, because it's beautiful. So this looks like a sort of retro circus poster from sort of the, around the 20s, and it's Saul's
1: Spectacular Heliocentric
2: Circus and revolutionary display of
1: heavenly bodies. So all the punning on this, it just adds an extra amazing layer to it. And then there's all the planets in different fonts with little bits of info, it's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. All it's their own unique circus act. It's just, it's a beautiful piece of work. And at the bottom, we should say that it says, shows nightly, weather permitting, times very seasonally, no refunds. So it's, it's just beautiful on many, many levels.
0: Mm-hmm. I, think, I think my favourite is Mercury, the mysterious marvel, endures the fiery sun. Mm-hmm. It's so dramatic. I love it.
2: My personal favourite is, by popular demand, Pluto. Oh, no, it isn't. Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> so everything about it is pretty much awesome. And on top of that, this is not just something that Philip has gone out and found. He has made it. There's a little uh, little sign at the bottom saying that...
0: Yeah. yeah actually, it's King, but there's a piece done for Philip. We assume Philip made it. We assume Philip
1: made was it. We're pretty sure Philip made even it.
2: If
0: he,
1: even if he just found it, it is frankly astounding. I mean, where would you find something that's cool? I think it has to be made, right?
2: I think so, especially given that you know he's signed the back of the frame. That is yeah, true. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, Philip, we're assuming that you made it. And that just makes you more awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
2: Twitter at twitter.com slash On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Flickr at flickr.com
1: forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts or amazing presents. <laughs> the address is on the website.
0: And speaking of the lunar eclipse as we were before, I'd really like to see if you've got any photos of the lunar eclipse, lunar impact or otherwise, I would love to see them. Yeah, so definitely tag. Hang it. It in for us. Thanks to Katie Mack for the interview. The editors were Beth Jones, Tiana Zoudenhout, George Bendo and Tom Scrag. The producers were Michael Wright and Naomi asabra Pong. Until next time... You're gone.